Welcome to the Value Add Podcast, where we talk with various entrepreneurs, real estate professionals, and innovators who are aiming to add value to the world. All right, I have Arna Bullock here uh, with IMAX Corp. Uh, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great, Andrew. How you doing, brother? Uh, dude, I'm doing good, man. Um, so let's just dive right into it. How did you get started in your line of work? And kind of, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at IMAX? Yeah, so I'm the vice president of marketing and business development at IMAX Worldwide Home. We're a leading wholesale supplier of home decorative accessories, um, B2B predominantly. So we work, uh, we, we basically, in a nutshell, we, we bring goods from all around the world um, that are everything from bases, wall decor, accent furniture, lighting, uh, and we curate them into trends uh, and, we, and we sell them to retailers, furniture stores, uh, gift stores, interior designers, um, and e-commerce retailers. So in my capacity, I am leading up our marketing, which is our B2B focus uh, with our small business, managing all of our different channels, business channels. Uh, and then also just from a business development standpoint, I take on special projects. Dude, that's awesome, man. How did you kind of get involved in this work? Yeah. So funny story. It's my family's business. Uh, so I've been doing this since I was a little kid. Uh, so, uh, my mother and father started the business over 36 years ago, importing copper pots from Turkey. So that's kind of where my story begins in it. And I worked in the warehouse growing up. I helped in the trade shows, uh, traveling as I, as I grew up, but, um, it wasn't until about three years ago that I came back to the business. Uh, after working in politics and government, uh, after graduating from University of Puget Sound, uh, I decided that it was time to maybe make a shift. I saw that there was an opportunity to come work for my family's business. I saw it as a short-term solution uh, to, to transition to going to grad school. I'd been considering to go to public administration. I was really invested into that area, but as soon as I saw the opportunity that we had in our business uh, and the uh, opportunity that I had personally to grow and have uh, the ability to work with our employees and to see our business uh, change through this environment, I kind of got really inspired by the idea of being able to take on that leadership role. And then uh, I ended up getting my MBA. Uh, so I went to Emory, I got my MBA. Uh, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go all in if I have this opportunity to, to, to work in this business with my family and eventually run it. Uh, I want to make sure I do it right. Uh, and it actually turned out that the greatest need that we had in an organization was in a marketing capacity. So um, I've been executing on that for over 14, 15 months now. Dang, that's awesome, man. Are you a first generation American or like did your parents immigrate mm -hmm. from Turkey over here? And Yeah, so my... my Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. So yeah, my parents, uh, my, my father, he immigrated to America in 1970. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've been in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area since about 1971, 1972. So almost 40 years, uh, 50 years in Tulsa, America. And, and my mother as well. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And I'm so, I'm always so fascinated kind of by first generation Americans because it's few and far between in today's society. 
Do you think growing up with somebody who grew up in another country and emigrated to the United States influenced you dramatically like on your work ethic and perspective of business and just kind of the world around you? Like you had a different perspective than most people in the United States. Like it made you work harder because you saw what your parents maybe had to go through. You heard what your parents had to go through or was mm -hmm. it a pretty easy transition for them uh, to come from Turkey over here? Honestly, I think of, uh, I think of this, I have an interesting take on this. I think that the quintessential American experience, what it means to be American is to participate in the immigrant experience. Uh, and so in my life, I've always been so inspired by seeing immigrants as entrepreneurs, yeah. as building communities, building families. I know that the, there's a lot of like politics around that, but I, I really find that I learned as an immigrant growing, coming into America. I didn't realize that I was an immigrant, really. I'm, yeah. I'm white passing in most parts. People don't know, ethnic, I'm ethically ambiguous. Yeah. So uh, it didn't really actually come to my consciousness about what my immigrant experience was like until I actually went to college. Yeah. Um, and you you do realize i think that immigrants uh, at least my parents they had a tremendous work ethic they had uh this desire to to build something new in a country that kind of established a a life a, a standard of living really was yeah. kind of the goal i think rather than having a specific uh goal or accomplishment but absolutely i do see my role coming into the business as a part of my uh family's american legacy yeah. I find that uh, to be really a rewarding idea to think about how gen for generations, my family lived overseas and I was the first one to be born in America, Yeah, which if you think about history broadly, it's still technically the new world, right? 100%. So, uh, so what we're building here, I, I find a lot of pride in. Um, I think that I'm really uh, influenced by my, my immigrant background. And I think another big piece of it is that when you are, uh, living in between two cultures like for me when you go i would go back to turkey to visit my family or you go home and you have a multilingual household i think just from a uh, a social standpoint and a communication standpoint you have the ability i think to be more amenable to different contexts and situations because that's the environment that you've grown up in uh like i i knew that you know in tulsa oklahoma that people went to church and they were christian but then when I went to Turkey, people were Muslim and that that was just the difference in the world and how people see and understand things. And I think being able to navigate those differences helps you in a professional capacity because you are more able to meet people from where they're at because you're not coming from a position of being in a place where everything kind of is the world is looks like you. So you're able to kind of mold and be able to fit into places. Not to say that non-immigrants don't do that, but I think it's a benefit that I see a lot of people with immigrant experiences that they have social skills to be able to connect with different types of people because they come from that experience of being a different person in, in a homogeneous culture. Yeah, no, I think the assimilation process is definitely, definitely a little bit difficult for some, but in the long term, super beneficial because you get, especially as a vice presidential role kind of you're in and potentially future owners, you get that perspective from your employees and you get that perspective from people that you're looking to hire and you're able to see maybe their objections or their struggles and their roles. And it's like, hey, how can we break this down and actually help you? And thus you're progressing mm -hmm. leading your people rather than just being a traditional manager and quote unquote boss. You're leading the people, you're the shepherd of your kind of little pack over there 
but mm -hmm. you said you were a politics and government major and you have this admiration to go into public services and mm -hmm. that type of role. What made you shift and said, hey, no, I'm not going to go into that public services role and I'm going to go and get involved in my family's business? Yeah, it's a really good question. It took me multiple years to kind of understand it for, for myself, but and then coming down to a, f a few things. Um, number one, I found that I was really passionate about uh, public service. I, I worked in the state legislature. I got to work on criminal justice reform, which was, you know, my absolute dream. And I, I saw a really clear uh, career path for me there. Um, and so I had worked in politics. I understood kind of where people go. That's why I was looking at getting a public administration degree. But then it kind of came to the realization later when I started tried out working for my family's business. And I continually challenged my parents, you know, what is, um, what is the biggest kind of uh, takeaway you get from what is, what is, what is, what do you get out of running a business? And yeah. it added me uh, to me a new perspective is that, you know, running, running a business is not just, you know, selling a widget here, adding, taking surplus value. But when you run a business, you have employees, and through the value created in your company, you get to have other employees come into that business and they get to grow, they get to raise their families, they send their kids to school, um, they get to build new houses. So that I think from an entrepreneur standpoint is a way that you impact people's lives in the course of your business. So it really was a perspective change for me because yeah. I thought for the longest time if I leave public service and go into my business, I felt like I was copping out because I felt like I was, you know, putting myself in a position to take an easier route. But then really what I realized is later is that actually maybe is a selfish way to think about it because I wanted to create all my own success, but not take advantage of the tremendous opportunity that I had in front of me to take yeah. what my parents had built and scale up or create even more value from what they did. And so it kind of was a perspective change to think, okay, I could, I, I believe in making the world a better place. I believe in improving people's lives. And I was ready to be on the front lines of that. You know, today we push it two feet forward, one foot back, two feet forward, one foot back. And I, and that's what political operatives do. They're working in, in the battleground. And I was really excited about that opportunity, but I thought, you know, if I go into the business, I feel that in the long run, my capacity to accomplish those same goals would be far greater because the scale of businesses compared to the nonprofit or sometimes even in the government perspective can provide so much more opportunity for improvement. And also just the way that our economy works, you have the ability to invest into people. I was just thinking the other day, right? Yeah. I could spend my whole life in uh, public service but maybe I wouldn't be able to impact as many people as I could just having 10 jobs for 20 years for people, you know, like 10, yeah. if I created 10 good paying jobs for 20 years, then how could I measure that impact even differently than anything else? And then long-term I feel as a business leader and someone who creates value in the economy, you have more credibility moving forward to be able to impact the public sphere, to able to be able to speak up, on uh, matters because you're not coming from a political operative standpoint. You're coming yeah. from, okay, this person is a business person. They have credibility in their own right as a leader of a community. Um, 
And so they, they might be heard more so. And I think credibility is one of the biggest kind of uh, assets you can have today. Yeah. And so I, it's a long story, but I, I found that not only was it um, the best thing to do for me, like the best thing to do for me personally and my, and my opportunities and my career, but I thought it was also the moral thing to do. Uh, working with my family, helping our employees, um, and I thought that the impact I could do there was greater than anywhere else. Dude, I think that's a great answer and it's very comprehensive and it really sheds the light on not just where you're trying to go with this business, but also kind of your long-term goals because it does seem like you want to get back into the public service uh, realm after you've made a successful triumph and, and credibility throughout IMAX um, and whatever else you want to do with inside this company or external. Um, but where do you see... I guess, was there a turning point for you? And not just a turning point, but what made you go get an MBA? Is that because you didn't study business, mm -hmm. and business in undergrad? Like, do you feel like the MBA has also helped you? Um, like, what, what do you, I love hearing like why people go out and try and get an MBA. Well, I would preface this by saying, I think I had a very unique case for going to get an MBA, uh, which is different than a lot of people. I think everyone gets an MBA for different reasons. Um, for me, I had been interested in higher education. I really believe in education, uh, just generally. And I told myself, you know, if I was going to go into business, because I'd never before, let's say like before 2017, 2018, I had never even considered going into private industry. Just oh, wow. like put that out there. This I, was a I really, really had quick even this was a really like quick I, transition. I really, really did. I, I remember in 2017, I told my dad I was thinking about going to uh, grad school. And he said, why don't you think about getting an MBA? And I, was, I scoffed. <laughs> that's for, that's for, yeah. Thanks, for jerk offs and, uh, and corporate, you know, uh, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was like, that's not for me. That's not, that's not me at all. Um, yeah. And so it was, it, was a, it was an interesting process, but when I came into the business, I found that if I was going to do this, I wanted to have the best tools and the best capacity to be successful in it. Uh, because I saw that there were so many challenges, so many different problems, and I knew that it was gonna be a big responsibility on me to take on that leadership role. So I wanted to be competent enough to do so. And not only just, as a leader and having credibility from my support staff and being able to do a good job at that, but just for my, my own livelihood, I didn't want to get into a position where I could go into this business without my MBA, without any experience. And I think I could do a good job, but I want to do an even better job. I want to do the best job so that my life can look different after this business or later beyond this business. That, so that the business doesn't become just my entire life, but that becomes a tool or entity that I, I guess the way I want to put it is I didn't want to be run by my business. I wanted to run my business. Yeah. And I can see that a lot of entre entrepreneurs get into that position where they feel like they're run by their business and they cannot yeah. uh, overcome it. So I thought if I get an MBA, I can not only help us grow and I think I can be a great agent for a company. I could be the level of talent that we don't have before, but um, I will be in position for my whole career to not just be limited to this business that it, we're created, but understanding how the business fits in a larger economy, how to scale the business, 
how to have my own exit strategy down the road. You know, yeah. I think a lot of people don't, uh, you know, th nowadays you, you hear a lot of investment bankers and things like that say, what's your exit strategy for your business? Yeah. And I think you need to have an exit strategy. Even I don't plan on leaving my business anytime soon, but I need to know that I'm competent enough to be able to get to the point where I could. Yeah. And so <laughs> that was a little bit of it, but um, even more so when I was in business school, you know, again, a lot of people go to business school for a lot of different reasons. I was very, very focused on how do I learn the things I need to learn to make my business successful. Yeah. So that's almost the, yeah, yeah, no, but you knew you were going to go to this business and that's the reason you went to the NBA. Exactly. So everything that you learned from your NBA is like, now I'm trying yeah. to directly apply this to IMAX. So, so that was in contrast to a lot of folks who go to business school thinking about a career change or yep. looking to get a promotion in their current career. So they're either trying to leverage the opportunity to network and find a new career path and gain some new skills, or they have those skills, but they need some of the credibility uh, to be able to get a promotion. Like if you work in consulting, uh, to go from a business analyst to a consultant or a senior consultant, you need to have that MBA. And I have my own opinion about the utility of that here or there. But uh, for me, it was all about gaining the skills that I needed. So I picked a school, I picked a program that was a one-year accelerated program. So the opportunity cost for me to be out of my business was minimized because I thought if I was gone for two years versus one year, I'd considered heavily being a part-time program, but the one-year accelerated program at Emory fit me pretty well. And I was extraordinarily focused on my academics and learning the skills that I needed to be successful. And actually, I think I was successful in that capacity. I feel like I had focused a lot on marketing, on analytics, and management and leadership strategy. So those areas, I feel like I've built up my, my tool chest. Mm -hmm. And I now feel like when I'm, it's not like, oh, this one equation I learned in class is the thing I need. Actually, sometimes that happens, yeah. but it's more about, oh, I'm dealing with a problem that I don't know how to fix. And I feel like if I hadn't got my MBA, I would have been almost clueless about how to solve it. Mm -hmm. But with my MBA, I have frameworks, I have tools, I have different uh, methods of kind of understanding problems and then connections and the network that can yeah. help me figure out problems and stuff. So going into this business, I think with the MBA or without it, I just feel far more, uh, um, empowered to be able to solve really complex problems and come up with the ways to understand it. Um, I guess last note on business school, one of the big things that I took away from it is that you have to, uh, from one of my advanced competitive strategy classes was if you can't figure out a business problem by just writing it down on pencil and paper and kind of like between, between just identifying the, the high level of a business problem on pen and paper, and then on the second hand, being able to model out on an Excel sheet, yeah. those are the two biggest skills that you need in, in business. If you can write down the assumptions and understand the levers and the causal relationships between things, and then start applying those onto like a financial model or something like that, yeah. I think just that alone is, is a, a fantastic framework that you learn in business school. But uh, from a technical standpoint, marketing wise, and data analysis, I did learn a lot of stuff that I do apply today. 
uh, that I've actually even iterated on uh, continuing to learn. But that's a unique experience. I don't know a lot of um, MBA students who were as academically focused as my as myself. Yeah. Uh, just based on the fact that their priorities were different going into business school. So it's all about kind of what your priorities are, what you're trying to get out of it, um, and how what's the opportunity cost for you. I mean, yeah. how much is two years of your career uh, a huge opportunity cost? Can you do a private, uh, a, a part-time program? Can you, uh, can you afford the cost of it? Will it offset with where you're thinking you'll land otherwise? And there's a lot of those types of considerations. Yeah. Um, but if you're trying to learn skills, I think that it's a def definitely a, a tremendous tool because I didn't have a business background at all. Dude, I, and I totally understand. I think you said it best. I think an MBA, I mean, for your case, it's very unique and very specific for what you were doing. I feel like just in higher education, once you go past undergraduate uh, to a graduate program or like an MBA, you need to know what you want to do because you're trying to make that career pivot and because it's usually very specialized into what you want to do and it's not generalized. Um, I don't know about mm -hmm. your MBA, but most of the programs I've looked into, I know others, it's very, it's like supply chain specific and it's very demographic mm -hmm. specific and industry specific. And you could be switching from one career in private equity to a, another arm in private equity um, and have two completely different roles because of it. And I think that's something that, Another topic side note is an issue with a lot of people in higher education is they don't necessarily go into school knowing what they want to do and giving themselves mm -hmm. the versatility and adaptability versus the with the intangible skill sets that they've created uh, to go help them and leverage that to go get a job or go make career pivots and stuff like that. But in your job, because you're going into a family office environment, I always love hearing this um, because you definitely get critics of nepotism and stuff like that, handing down businesses. Did you think that the MBA gave you credibility um, going into your family business and saying like, oh, this 24 year old, 25 year old guy um, like actually knows what he's talking about. And it's not just because he's the son of the, of, the, of the CEO and owner of the company. Is that an objection you had to overcome or was it just because you were always in the business? Um, it wasn't necessarily that big of a deal and you already had that credibility going in. No, uh, no, it's absolutely part of it. I mean, you have to, you, you, when you buy, when you, when you pay for an MBA, you're in part paying for the brand and you're paying for uh, the credibility that comes along with that. Um, and no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a piece of the, of the big puzzle, but I absolutely felt like I needed credibility as a leader going into our business because people are always going to question twice about, what it is that you're doing or why or why you have the authority that you do and as a young person going into a business and working with and even managing now people who are 10 years 20 years older than me you do need to i think i think the 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 degree helps right like i have it in my office but it also has to be backed up with action you 100%. know but I think the combination of those two, and I think also to external stakeholders as well, it helps you with your credibility as well. Although I don't put MBA on my LinkedIn name or uh, mm -hmm. stuff like that. I think it can, when you're dealing with like uh, an agency or, um, you know, or a vendor that you're working with, I mean, having that credibility as a stakeholder coming to the table and say, hey, you know, we're not amateurs here. You know, we, we know what we're doing. Um, I'm not just, uh, uh, the I'm not just daddy's kid coming in working here. I actually kind of grew 
uh, up in this business. I learned the ropes. I went outside and actually got uh, a degree that is actually really rare for our industry. People in our industry don't get MBAs. Mm-hmm. A lot of people actually told me before I got my MBA, don't get an MBA. You don't need an MBA. You just need to get experience in this industry. So that helps, that helps a lot. Um, but again, it's still about just being a leader. But the most important thing I think that helped me gain credibility was that business school gave me the tools to create a strategy. Yeah. And then because of my position, I was able to get the buy-in of our business strategy across the board. And yeah. then once you have a good strategy in place, all of the elements of it are self-reinforcing. So what's happened is that because of the tools I had from a business, from my business background, I was able to create a business strategy, a cultural uh, kind of uh, environment that was aided by that knowledge that helped me build credibility over time because the things that I was trying to do, I've been starting to work. So it's just a constant battle. I know that I am in a unique position because I constantly have to fight for um, my, my credibility. I, I really do believe that because you, you don't, you don't just get handed things in life or you shouldn't get just handed things in life. Um, and that was my uh, mantra from the outset. I didn't, I didn't want to walk into this business and have it handed to me. I wanted to build it to become something that was my own, um, that I felt like I could deserve and share in its successes as I do want my employees and my coworkers to share in its successes. So dude, that's awesome. Um, now, now let's really kind of dive into the business here. Uh, you're mm-hmm. predominantly in the retail sector, correct? Yes. Or, and then, yes. so how has COVID kind of affected you guys and how have you made the adaptation uh, to the current market conditions now? Mm-hmm. And what's your perspective on retail uh, kind of moving forward within your guys' business? Because I know that you guys have a lot of storefronts uh, in a way at a lot of different trade show locations across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, has it affected your supply chain? Um, because I know you have a lot of overseas uh, suppliers and vendors. Um, so I guess let's start with the, re- the component of how has COVID kind of affected your guys' business and how do you see it moving forward? Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting levers that we have in our business is our channel structure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you like kind of in business, you think about like marketing or sales is how do I bring a product to market, right? And there's different ways to bring that product to market. How does my product go from a factory overseas into a consumer's hands? And there's multiple ways that that happens, right? They, they can go to a, a, a independent retailer and buy that product. They can go to uh, an e-commerce retailer like Wayfair and pick up that product. They can go to a furniture store. They can go to a mass discount store like Home Goods, or they can uh, buy uh, have an interior designer working for them. So we have multiple routes to market. And so one of the biggest things that happened as a result of COVID is that our channel structure changed. So, you know, we get X percent of business from this channel, X percent from this channel. Well, some of those pieces of the pie went to zero and then some of them doubled, you know, and that changes. So when your overall channel strategy mix changes, it changes your gross margins and your profitability and your inventory turnover because all those channels buy at different discounts or different volumes. So more broadly, what we see, what we saw was initially uh, we, we really had a lot of tools in our back pocket that helped us in this process because of the digital transformation that we had already gone. We bought 
had invested heavily into a B2B e-commerce platform, which is a fancy website. And we yeah. heavily invested into developing an in-house marketing, marketing capability. And yeah. we did this over a year ago. And so what that enabled us to do is once we came into uh, COVID era where um, basically the traditional routes to market, uh, like for us, are trade shows. So we have showrooms in Dallas, Atlanta, Las Vegas, and High Point. Mm-hmm. Traditionally in May, customers come in June and July, customers come to those trade shows and that's where they do a majority of their buying. Well, that route to market had been kind of uh, disintermediated. You know, people could not go. So we had to create alternatives to provide value to our customers in this environment that actually ended up being a big benefit to us because we had the website, we had the marketing. So we saw a huge shift of our business um, not an incremental shift, but a shift in terms of, okay, customers used to buy this way. Now they're buying in these ways. And so by developing that omni-channel experience, which you hear a lot in retail, but we're thinking about it in a B2B standpoint, you, uh, you have to accommodate the customer in all those ways. So we've done things like uh, a live uh, showroom experience where customers in a format like a Zoom meeting are able yeah. to enter our showroom in a live capacity. That's been extraordinarily successful for us. Um, we have a great website that's seen an incredible increase in uh, volume just yeah. based on the fact that customers are now learning how to use our website and we've enabled them to use that very easily. So that those are the types of things that we've been seeing from a business standpoint about being able to accommodate our customer and provide value to them across the different ways that they like to shop. And right now, and I think in all industries, what customers value is changing, right? Like beforehand, the customer really, really valued, and they still do being in our showroom in person. But now that value because of the safety concerns has gone down. And so there's other things that they can value instead. And we just have to meet those needs. Uh, so it's been a really interesting time. We've been able to put ourselves in a really good position to capture our customers. And I think we also have advantages over our competition because yeah. we've been in the industry for longer. We have a list of customers who are in our ecosystem that know about us. And I think what we've seen also is that um, there's going to be some that in this environment benefits the larger fish. Uh, because we already have the larger ecosystem to be able to service customers on a smaller basis yeah. and they don't have to, uh, and the, the detract, the, the other environmental factors around COVID, like for example, a trade show being closed adversely affects our smaller competition. So, yeah. uh, because, because they may not have the, the overhead to, uh, have as good of a website they might not have as strong as a Salesforce representation. They might be depending a f- high, much more on their, um, on their business from the trade shows. They might be yeah. depending on 90% of their business coming from those trade shows. So uh, there's a lot of different things. And I think it, it actually played into a strategy that we had uh, going into 2020. And it just allowed us to double down on that. Awesome, man. Do you think you're going to get rid of your retail storefronts? Do you think there's going to be so, a resurgence in retail post-COVID, which is, would, it might be in the next two years, three years, nobody really knows. But, I mean, what do you think? 
You know, it just depends on like what you mean by retail, right? I mean, our retail storefronts are our showrooms, which are yeah. B2B servicing. I actually am evolving how I conceive of that as well. You know, trade shows have traditionally been locations where customers come to for once or twice a year for a winter and summer show. But we're moving towards a model of having those showrooms open year round so that our designers and our brick and mortar customers can come see us uh, immediately there. And we're also scaling up operations where rather than just using our showrooms as an order taking place where people place an order and then we ship it from our warehouse, but actually having an inventory available uh, immediately for pickup. Okay. And again, this is like in a B2B context. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways we can Im- imagine that, but I think that they, they take, they're, they're going to have a role moving forward, at least in our B2B context, but it's going to be, again, another piece of an omni-channel experience. And I think retailers, like B2C retailers, are seeing that as well. Um, the value add, the value of having a storefront where a customer can come and see you and have a consultation or have that added value, I don't think that uh, Wayfair can immediately replace that. Uh, I don't think that, they, that, there, that there's going to be space for that. And actually, we've seen some really strong demand from actually smaller independent retailers. So I do believe that there is opportunity for those but they too have to differentiate in terms of their services uh, and their omni-channel options. So a lot of smaller retailers are going into an e-commerce, a blended option in terms of, you know, take orders on the web. We've seen a lot of uh, retailers do that. And I think that there's a a suite of tools coming into the marketplace to help them there. But our role as a business is not only to sell them uh, products that they love, I mean, that's one of our products, but our product as well is the service that we provide in terms of ways to shop, post-sale, making sure that their, their products received and that they get the claim. So uh, we, we, we see ourselves as a bundle of product and services. And so we have to constantly figure out on all of those fronts, how are we fitting, filling our, the needs of our customers? I love it, man. And do you think... Um how much do you know how much of your business is uh based on relationships and the retention and kind of bringing customers back and going out for new customers like what's the percentage difference yeah. it? i don't i have not done an analysis in terms of return customers but yeah. i know that uh, traditionally in our large brick and mortar business channel yeah. uh, where there's a lot of unique individual smaller customers yeah that we do have a high amount of turnover uh, you know, somewhere oh. upwards of, you know, anywhere between 30, 40, 50%, because customers, when they come into a market environment, they literally can window shop. They go here, this year, I'm going to buy a little bit from them. Maybe next year, I'm going to try from them. Uh-huh. Or the year after that, they do this. But now under the COVID environment, we're finding that customers are looking to really stick with the vendors who are the most competent and the most service oriented. So I haven't done the analysis, but I'm anticipating that this year, while we might have a a decrease in new customers that come into our system, we've definitely retained more customers year over year because of uh, being able to be there for them in this environment. Um, And then also just because I think uh, our customers, our existing customers are going to be splitting their wallet fewer ways. 
So maybe they might have 10 vendors before they're going down to five vendors or three vendors. And because we're one of the more established players in the industry, we have the robust set of tools for them to work with us. We get to ideally capture more share wallets. So your customer, customer retention point, I'm not sure if we're retaining more customers, I'd like to think so, but I know for a fact that we're getting a higher share of wallet out of them. And so that's another way to grow your business, right? You can get new customers, retain more of your same customers or get more from the same customers. And ideally you want the combination of all three. Yeah, you do. And you really kind of, you have a model that's predicated, Hey, once you're in the door, I'm going to get you on upsell. Like, Hey, like, let's get you on this product and like, Hey, let's, this, this product goes great with that one. And you just kind of keep stacking them on. It's not like you don't really make the money off one single purchase. You make it off two or three or, or five or whatever that number is uh, to you guys. Yeah. All right, man. But where do you see the long term for this business and you? And the long term growth of this business? Do you see a lot of growth opportunity within this kind of home decor accessory kind of world or niche that you got going on? Um, or do you kind of see it as a stagnant market or kind of, can you elaborate just like really where you see the growth, um, as a young professional coming into your business? I think, uh, I'm honestly tremendously optimistic, um, for a couple of reasons. One is that we have a lot going on for our business and in the last year or so, we've really narrowed in our strategy and understanding what is our point. I think in marketing, you have your position. What is our point of parity and what is our point of differentiation? And so when I see that we're a leading home decorative accessories vendor for retailers and designers with the best product variety at the greatest value. And so once you set that in stone, you can really begin to self reinforce that concept, you know, with our merchandising, with our marketing, with our offers. And now that we've been doing that for a while, it seems like we're really starting to hit a sweet spot with our customers because we've clearly defined our positioning with them. Yeah. And once we've done that, once we know who we are as a company ourselves, and you know that that is a viable positioning in the market, right? You, yeah. you don't only, you have to know what your positioning is and then know that that positioning is a good spot in the landscape of the industry. It's self-reinforcing. And I find customers who like, for example, we had uh, a marketing campaign over the last year. We want to convey product variety and we want to say that every one of my goals is I want customers to see IMAX is their look. Well, I was in the showroom the other day and a customer came up to me. She's like, this is, this is my style. IMAX is my style. And you know what? You know what I did? I, I, I pulled up our magazine that we, we produce and our campaign on it is IMAX is my style. So it showed me that we are hitting the spot in terms of our messaging, our marketing and our positioning. And I think once you do that in in any business, you can be selling any type of widget. Once you understand what your customers value and you're positioned well to deliver it, and then you execute on that, then the sky is the limit in terms of your business. And we're starting to see that wave turn for us. Um, In terms of, I see more digital transformation happening in our industry. I see the adoption of virtual online conferencing being a year round aspect of our business. And we're on the forefront of that. Um, But just, just generally, I feel like if you, if you put yourself in the mindset of where do you think the economy is going in terms of like, you know, less person to person contact 
needing a seamless, relevant experience for your customers, um, we're positioning ourselves to be very competitive in that space. And so I'm hoping that, you know, in 2021, 2022, uh, not only will we be able to retain, I think right now we've been capturing more market share because of our capacity and our ability to outperform our competitors who have been probably adversely affected more by COVID. So it's about capturing more market share and then next year retaining that year over year. And then also in the absence of our trade shows, finding new avenues to acquire new customers. Okay. Uh, those are all things that we're open-minded to, but yeah, I'm very optimistic. I think just mainly because of the philosophy and the orientation and strategy that we have. Awesome, at man. the end of the day, you got to combine that with the assets you have as a company. And if that is kind of all fitting well together and you can see where you want to be, the success just starts kind of rolling in. Uh, at least that's yeah. how I, I understand it. Dude, I love it, man. And then I just got to ask, and I don't know if you have the answer to it, but because you mentioned it earlier, what's your exit strategy? Is there an exit strategy for IMAX or is it just to get acquired? Is it to go IPO? Is it just to stay private and keep kind of growing and just acquiring different things and consolidating within your own industry and, and kind of gobbling up your competitors? Is what's, what's the exit strategy for you, man, in your mind? Well, this business, because of its broad capabilities, I mean, we're importing, exporting, we have ways to talk to customers, we have the tools, we know how to do it. Um, there's a ton of different ways that it can go. I don't anticipate in the short term taking any radical uh, directions here or there. Um, but my exit strategy, I've kind of put myself in a position of thinking in a really long term. Uh, I have a five, 10 year window goal horizon. Um, yeah. but I don't know what the answer to that looks like. I think my exit strategy is to put the business into a position where it could be sustainable uh, without my family being directly involved. There you go. That's the goal for any, any, any family business for it to be sustainable. You don't need uh, an actual, you know, person being uh, driving, driving a sled. I'm willing to drive the sled, uh, maybe for the next five, 10 years, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That's the commitment that I bought into. Uh, and it's not like I'm looking to, to sell out here or there. Yeah. I just think that there's, there's, there's plenty of room to iterate, but for now, right now, my main focus is how do I make this company uber successful? Because once you get to that point, it doesn't matter what your exit strategy is. You're in a good position to do whatever you want. Awesome, man. Um, and just because it's kind of right into it as we're kind of wrapping up here and you said, let's make this company uber successful. Um, I mean, how do you define success and what does that mean to you? So I was thinking about it uh, in, in two, two different ways. I think success from a business standpoint, my belief is I read the book. Um, there's a couple books on this. I can't remember the name, but I think success for a business is a business that can take care of all of the stakeholders. Yeah. When you look at the definition of what a business is, it's not, we like to think of it as like a human or like a, we anthropomorphize a business. We say Apple is a human or it's Steve Jobs, but really a business is the nexus between the shareholders, the customers and the employees. Yeah. Like between those three groups, that's what makes a business. Yeah. It's the people who own it, the people who run it and the people who, uh, who buy from it. Yeah. So 
I think success in a business standpoint is creating a company in which the value in between in that nexus is beneficial for everybody involved. Right. I think at the baseline, that's, that's like everybody the the, the shareholders, the, uh, the customers, the, and the employees, they get more value out of the entity than they put into it. That's yeah. like, that's, that's capitalism. That's, that's business in general. You want a business to create surplus value. And I want, and I think the ultimate, you don't want all of the, that surplus value going to the customers because yeah. then the shareholders and the employees are unhappy. You don't want all of that going to the employees because the shareholders and the customers are unhappy. You don't want all that going to the shareholders because then the customers and the, the employees are unhappy. So imagining a structure in which we can have that, and it's a really vague answer, I guess, but I think that it ties into what my personal definition of success is, which I think is at the utmost level is balance. I think you need to have balance in life. I think, um, you know, I really believe in having, um, you know, my thinking from my body, mind, and soul. I think yeah. about all of those things. My mind is my, is my business. It's thinking about how can I be successful and really, really, uh, you know, create value in the economy. But yeah. if that was with, if that was at, at the expense of my physical health and at the expense of my emotional and relationships, then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be worth it, you know? No. So you have to have, I think, that, that, that trifecta. You need to have your mind that's stimulated, you need your body that's feeling fit and active and stimulated and healthy, whatever that means for you. And I think you need to have other outfits like for your soul. Like you need to have music or philanthropy or other things outside of just yourself and your business uh, that you're passionate about. And that can be your family too. I mean, yeah. it is your family, but I, I conceive of it right now as, you know, I need it. My business is my priority, but also my, my health is my priority. Mm -hmm. Dude, I love it, man. Um, hold on, I think you cut out there for a second. Oh, yeah, I'm on my phone. Oh, yeah, well. yeah, you're good. <laughs> so that last bit, I was just, it's all about balance. It's all about balance. Uh, dude, I love it, man. Um, really appreciate you doing this. Um, I think that's a great way to wrap it up and end it. Um, but if people want to find you, uh, connect with you, uh, see IMAX or whatever, how can they kind of reach you? I'll put the links in the description. Uh, I think the best way, uh, if you want to connect with me, I'm trying to build up my LinkedIn, I think as a platform for me to represent our business, kind of thought leadership. I like to talk about things about uh, as a B2B marketer and business development strategist. Uh, so uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn, that'd be a great way. Or you can um, check out imaxcorp.com. You just want to see what we're about. Awesome, man. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Arda. Thank you. Appreciate you, man. <laughs>